there's an understanding that really runs through um, throughout the Buddha's teachings. It's a, really permeates in, in a way, really permeates the fabric of, of what the Buddha was talking about in his teaching, something that he stressed over and over. And although it's, it's a teaching, it's an understanding that's quite central in, in the discourses, in what the Buddha spoke about, it's uh, often misunderstood. There's confusion, doubt, that arises in regard to this teaching and, and confusion that can often lead to um, real suffering in people's lives, I think, at times. And this is the teaching on the law of, of karma or kamma in Pali, karma in Sanskrit. Um, I, think, I think some of the, the confusion, the misunderstanding that surrounds this is at least in part related to the fact that this word is, has come into the, the modern lexicon language, into the culture in the last few decades. It's, it's there a lot. Um, and and it's, um, it shows up, but it's shown up in a, in, in a way that's it's used very casually and it's used in ways that are not actually reflective of, of what the meaning, the real, uh, the depth of the meaning there. There's an over, oversimplification, uh, a superficial um, relationship to this word that shows up, you know, and we hear it a lot, you know, we hear expressions, you know, um, references to good and bad karma or instant karma is going to get you, you know, song lyrics, or, um, you know, we hear ourselves saying, saying, using the word, you know, there's bumper stickers, my, my dogma just ran over your karma. Uh, no, my karma just ran over your dogma. I reversed that. <laughs> Excuse me. But um, it gets used in these in sometimes kind of jocular ways or uh, oversimplified ways. Um, we hear references to um, some quality of what this teaching is about in, in uh, phrases or expressions that don't use the word. But things like "as you you sow, so shall you reap," or um, "what goes around comes around," expressions like this, that have some connection to this understanding, to this teaching, but actually don't uh, really uh, get to the fullness of what it's about. And there's another aspect because the teachings on karma are so often. Uh, very closely tied to, and certainly in when the Buddha spoke about this, it's very uh, tied to, in a way, inseparable from teachings on rebirth, which are also often misunderstood. A lot of questions come up about what that is, what's that about? You know, who is reborn or what is reborn? Who is it that reaps the fruits of these actions? What's what's happening there? How are how is the fruit of past actions uh, coming to bear in terms of rebirth? You know, is, is the suffering that I experience in my life the result of some past actions that I may have done or we see in other people? You know, am I to blame? Was it my fault? A lot of uh, questions coming up around this. And, and there can sometimes be an almost blaming quality to uh, the way we relate to this word as though as though karma somehow is functioning like fate, you know, that, that there's some, some force that's emerging out of the past that, um, that somehow we're responsible for in some way and that there's nothing, and there's nothing we can do about that, that it's just fatalistic kind of uh, relationship to this, you know, and we hear this in, we hear this in the language, you know, we'll say, uh, it's just my bad karma, or it's it's so and so's. It's their bad karma. It's that's um, coming into play, and and there's a this kind of fatalistic uh, relationship to the word. Really, is a deep misunderstanding of it actually, and and from there, it's not far to to take the next step, which which uses it as a sort of. Um, almost as a way of blaming or, or that beings deserve what, 
you know, the circumstances, well, it's their own fault. They just deserve that, that, that they don't deserve uh, compassion or care because they're just reaping, they're getting their just desserts or something. Sometimes we find this kind of attitude showing up. And we have to be, I think, really careful not to use the teachings on karma, the, the reflection on this, as some kind of excuse for indifference. You know, this is the, the reflection on karma is very much tied to the, the reflections that are used for cultivating equanimity. And this quality of indifference, as Sky was speaking about in her last talk, points to this, this near enemy or near neighbor of, of equanimity, which is actually, um, it's, it's not the real thing at all. It's, it's a kind of disconnected relationship, but um, real equanimity is, is all about connection and in my mind is very closely related to the qualities of compassion that are not looking at causes of suffering so much to determine whether or not compassion is, is uh, something that's expressed, but is just relating to suffering by touching it directly and the wish to uh, that beings be free of suffering, the wish to alleviate it if possible, when and if possible. A colleague of mine in a talk uh, once referred to the teachings on karma as, as the science of happiness, which I think is a very useful and beautiful way of holding this teaching and, and quite an apt description of, of what's really uh, pointed to in, this, in the understanding of the unfolding of karma and how it f- actually functions in our lives. Because if we really understand it, then in a certain key way, it is a recipe for happiness. It is a science of happiness. Um, human happiness here and now, you could say heavenly happiness. And in its deepest way, ultimately, the happiness of liberation. So in order to understand the teachings on karma, kama, I'll use those two words interchangeably, karma, kama. We need to look at, initially to get a sense for this, we need to look at uh, what we mean when we speak about the conditioned nature of experience of life, the conditioned nature of things. What is actually meant when we speak about conditionality, the conditioned nature of life, of experience. And what do we mean when we say in the moment, it's the product of causes, conditions coming to bear, that come together, that the result, the moment is the result of, of causes and conditions. We say this a lot. We use this kind of language. And so what this points to in a very fundamental way is the way that each moment impacts conditions subsequent moments of experience. And there's a, an understanding that this is not a random thing, but that there's actually a lawful way that, that this process unfolds, a lawfulness to this, uh, the way conditioning happens in our lives in experience. So it's not, things do not happen in some random way. Things that happen are not just the product of, of the luck of the draw of random chance. There are natural laws that govern how things unfold in our lives. And I think a really good and often used um, illustration or description of how we might hold this is in terms of of the laws of nature. And we can see it very simply um, in terms of, of a seed. You know, when we talk about the seeds karma in terms of planting of seeds. That image is used a lot and it's a very good one. It's an apt one. And we can just think very simply, if we plant a certain kind of seed, we'll get a certain kind of plant. So if, if we plant an acorn, we're going to get an oak tree and not a birch or a maple. You know, if we put hollyhock seeds into the ground, we're going to get hollyhocks and not daisies or cosmos or some other kind of flower. So there's a lawfulness to that. You know, it's not you put a seed in and 
don't know what's going to come. If it's a particular seed, it will bear that kind of, of fruit or the, that particular kind of plant. So in, in the teachings on karma, this same quality of lawfulness then applies to um, the way that our own actions yield results, that they also unfold in a lawful way. And there's the understanding that we can see this functioning within a single life, within our daily ongoing experience as we go through a day, through a lifetime, and that this same lawfulness applies in, um, from one life to the next through this process of birth, death, and rebirth. And there's the understanding then in that way that the quality of consciousness at the moment of death then has a conditioning effect, an impact on, on what's called rebirth consciousness, on the consciousness of the next uh, birth that happens in that flow, in a flow. We can see it in terms of mind moments, mind moments. And, and this teaching in terms of rebirth, it's, it's all over in the texts. And, you know, it may or may not be meaningful to us. And there's no um, requirement that one adopt a belief in rebirth in order to be able to practice and have the teachings unfold. That's not a requirement. I'm not asking that of you tonight. We can see this in terms of uh, one moment to moment being deaths and rebirths. But we might... Um, we might open to the possibility that it is a, on a larger scale, a bigger ongoing scale. Certainly the teachings, uh, the suttas, all of the Buddhist teachings are permeated with this understanding this of a more vast uh, way of looking at things. But it's not a requirement that you adopt some sort of belief. You might suspend disbelief, uh, perhaps, but whether or not it's meaningful to us, um, we can see the process, as I said, unfolding moment by moment. And there's an image that I heard somewhere, I think, or anyway, it's one I've got here in this talk I've put together, of using one candle to light another candle and then moving on a series of candles, each one lighting the next one, which I think is kind of a nice illustration. Because if we take a candle... And you have to imagine that as I light the next one, the, the subsequent one has gone out right, for this illustration to work. But if I take a candle and I, I bring it over and I use it to light another candle, then what, what's happening there? You know, And we can see mind moments in our ongoing experience in the same way. There's, it's not that I'm taking the flame off of this one and putting that flame onto the next one. That's not what happens there. But there's conditions come together for the new flame to arise by bringing those conditions of heat and whatever is involved in, in flame, a combustible material, the heat of that. So we haven't taken the flame off, but there's that effect. It's conditioning. There's that conditioning effect. And so then the next one arises out of those conditions and so on. And it's, it's a lawful process that happens there. And so when we ask questions about rebirth, who is reborn? I think one of the things that's key here is not to turn what is a process into a thing, into thingness, right? Seeing that, that what we're pointing to here with this is this process this flow, this conditioning process that happens there. There's no thing in the same way that we don't take this flame off of this candle and put it onto the next one. There's no thing that's carried over in thingness, but there is this conditioning process that happens, that unfolds in that. And so the understanding in, in terms of rebirth, whether it's the new birth in each moment or over subsequent lifetimes. There's the understanding that wholesome, skillful, beautiful actions in one life will tend to condition um, happy states in the next, in a subsequent life, in the future, in the next moment. So 
with this idea of, of rebirth, however we hold that, we need to be careful, a little bit careful with that, to not somehow then use the teachings of karma as a way to reflect backwards and say, oh, well, because of some past, this something that happened, then that's why it's the way it is now with this, this resigned or fatalistic kind of attitude I was speaking about earlier, as though we could use the teaching to reflect back and, and point to some reason that things are the way they are now uh, as some kind of, because of this, this. It's, it's a more complicated and dynamic process than just, um, you know, because of this, then this. As though, for example, if we have bad health in this moment, in, at this time, that it's reflecting some misdeed in a past life or earlier in this lifetime. And, and this quality then of getting what one deserves or something. As though it's all some kind of predetermined thing that's just unfolding. Because as I was saying, it's a dynamic process. It's not mechanistic. It's not um, fatalistic. There's nothing that is fixed or predetermined in this system. It's much more alive than that. It's ongoing. So a key to understanding the teachings on, on karma, kamma, is really found in the literal translation of that word, which many of you know, but the word kamma or karma means action. That's what it means, action. We have we've have a shortened way. We talk about karma now as what actually, uh, the, the term in Pali would be karma or kama vipaka, the fruits. We talk about the, the results of actions. But the word kama means, means action. It's a doing of a thing. Actions of body, actions of speech, actions of mind. So it's this active uh, doing of a thing. And if we look at actions, all actions, actions, bodily actions that we might do, actions of speech, actions in the mind, they, all of these have their origin in the mind. Everything, anything that, that um, exists as an action has its genesis in the mind and heart. It's, that's the beginning. You know, and the Buddha spoke of this in the famous opening lines of the Dhammapada when he said, mind is the forerunner of all things. And, and on from there, that mind, the, the power, the importance of, of the mind in this process. In the um, Buddhist psychology, the teachings of the Abhidhamma, which is a very detailed exploration of, of uh, the mind-body process and, and how it functions on a very um, minute level. It's quite a dense teaching. But within this, there's... Uh, the detailed examination of, of the mind, of mental processes there. And there's a, there's a couple of things that are, are key for the purposes of this talk that I want to point to that are in there. So uh, within that understanding, there's a mental factor of consciousness, which has the function, the bare function of knowing. And so we can, it knows the object of attention. So a simple way we might, we might think of this is, is uh, if I strike the bell, right, there's, there's that sound arises. There's contact at the air door. If the air door is functioning, so the meets there, comes together with that sensitivity and hearing consciousness then the knowing of that arises. So that's this moment of contact, these things coming together, consciousness arising there. And the understanding in this teaching is that along with, at that moment, it's said that there's a whole bunch of other stuff, some of which always arises and some of which may or may not arise. So for example, it's said that um, with every moment of contact, there's a feeling tone of Vedana, all familiar with this uh, idea of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that that feeling tone 
is, is there, that that's just arises in that moment of contact, may or may not be seen, may be very subtle. And there are a host of bunch of other things that um, may or may not arise. There's also a mental factor of intention that arises in the mind. Chaitanya is the Pali word. This word intention, sometimes volition is used for this word. And this is, um, this is the energy that gives rise to action. And it is, it is, there's an understanding in the teachings of karma that um, actions that are born of intention, that this is what leads to karmic, the karmic process, to fruits, that it's this in quality of intention, intentionality. Um, so this is key. And the Buddha, uh, in one, in kind of a famous statement, he said, intention, I tell you, is karma. Intending one does kama, kama meaning action, intending one acts by way of body, speech, or mind. So that quality of intention arises with, with um, actions that we may do. And we can see this in our um, ongoing experience at times, this quality of, it's like an energetic gathering of, of an impulse before acting. Sometimes we can see this. It's quite subtle, but we can see it um, before movements, for example. It's arising and passing, arising and passing all the time um, before any action that is taken. Now, this quality of chaitana, of, of uh, intention, is, is neutral in and of itself. But there are other qualities, factors that can arise that can color this. So we can think of this in terms of what we might call the motivation that's there, that, that uh, impacts or colors this quality of intention. So for example, actions may be colored by desire or greed, by aversion or love or generosity, by confusion or wisdom. Those can be operating there and color this. So this quality of motivation along with the intention is, is uh, key to the, how uh, this quality of how, this, uh, how karma functions then. And so um, it's interesting there because the, the karmic weight, you could say, or the um, power karmically of an action is not inherently found within the action but has, is tied into this quality of intention and, and the motivation there that comes together with that. So we could think of um, oh, simple examples like the activity of starting a fire. You know, you could have the same activities of starting a fire. And in one case, it could be a fire that's using to cook, being used to cook food or, or keep warm or it could be an act of arson to burn down a building. And the, the intention, the motivation and intention behind those is very different. Or you know, using a, um, a crowbar to pry open a door. It could be someone who's breaking and entering to commit a robbery, or it could be someone, a fireman who's trying to rescue someone who's trapped in a, in a locked uh, building, a door that needs to be uh, bo- broken open to rescue somebody. So this, the action is, might look the same if we just took that, but then there's very different motivation behind that. And, and we can see in terms of, of um, the understanding of karma that these motivations, they show up in terms of, of in, in the broadest way of, of the three unwholesome and, and then con- um, conversely the three wholesome roots so they, we can have motives that are born of greed, hatred, or delusion, and all the different uh, permutations of those, or motivations of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or you could phrase them in, in the positive of um, motivations of kindness, generosity, compassion, wisdom, 
clear seeing, clear understanding. So we, we can see it in that very simple way. And so as we go through our, our uh, days, we can look and see for ourselves as we sit and walk and um, watch on the mind, the body closely, we start just to understand as we go through life, then which, which of these qualities are wholesome and, and lead to good results and which lead to uh, suffering in our lives. And so this, the power of intention is very, um, not to be underestimated, acts born of intention. But, you know, and it manifests, it's so subtle and quick. We miss it most of the time. We don't see it. So it seems very small and um, not a big deal, right? But then the power there is really good. And so we go back to this image of seeds then. You know, we have this, these little tiny seeds that can produce huge trees, for example. The power of that, it's amazing to think of. This tiny little seed can produce a huge tree and then that tree flowers and brings forth an abundance of different fruits just from this one tiny seed. And so this quality of intention in and of itself, it can seem like such a small thing, but it has this incredible potential, the potentiality there in the same way that a seed has that. And so we can look at intention as a seed in the mind, the seed of action there that can flower forth in many kinds of ways. And so then intentions with this wholesome motivation tend to yield beneficial results and uh, motivations and actions that are born, actions that are born of um, unwholesome, unskillful kinds of motives will lead to uh, suffering, stress, and difficulty. So there's a lawfulness to that. And so one of the beautiful things there is then there's a quality of um, empowering that we have. You know, we can choose which seeds we want to plant, right? It's not just, um, it's not a random thing and it's, it's not something that we're uh, condemned to, to uh, follow only one course. You know, we can alter the course of our lives by the seeds we choose to plant in this way. So then it's worth looking, you know, how are we living? This may seem pretty clear. It's not a, nothing really complicated in anything I've been saying or in this understanding. But then how do we, do we actually put this into practice? Do we look at our intentions and motivations before we act? There's a, a well-known sutta. This is a sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. Um, it's a, a place where the Buddha the time, the situation here, he's instructing his son Rahula, who has, uh, when he grew up, became a monk, uh, one of the Buddha's disciples. And so this is an excerpt from a much longer teaching, but the Buddha asked the questions, what do you think, Rahula? What is a mirror for? And Rahula answers, for reflection, sir. In the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions, and mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to do a bodily action, you should, you should reflect on it. This bodily action I want to do, would it lead to, to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Would it be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences and painful results? If on reflection you know that this would be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences and results, then any bodily action of that sort is unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, would not cause painful results, that it would be skillful with pleasant consequences and pleasant results, then that is fit for you to do. And then he goes on and recommends that he reflect this way in terms of actions of speech and actions of mind. So this quality reflecting before doing something, while doing it, and even afterwards to uh, reflect then. He talks about it in terms of actions of body, speech, and mind, and then uh, reflecting before the doing, 
in the process of doing, is this leading to good things or not? And afterwards looking back, oh, what, what happened there? Did that action lead to good results or not? Did it lead to affliction for myself or others? And this kind of reflection that one can bring to bear. Another way that the Buddha spoke about bringing attention to our actions is in terms of uh, a teaching on what were called the 10 unwholesome actions to be avoided. I'll mention these briefly. Um, I'm not gonna go into them in in detail, but in this list of 10, there are three actions of body, four actions of speech, and three actions of uh, in the mind. And, and there's kind of the, the reverse of them, the 10 wholesome actions which one should do. And so these bodily, three bodily actions to be avoided are um, killing, intentionally killing living beings, taking that which is not given or stealing, I could say in the short way, and then uh, engaging in sexual misconduct or um, lack of care with sexual energy. Four actions of speech, lying, false speech, harsh or abusive speech, malicious speech that's used to undermine another or cause division, and useless speech, idle, gossiping kind of speech, frivolous, useless speech. And then actions of mind to be avoided, uh, covetousness, that's... um, Um, desire for what belongs to another person, coveting another person's uh, things or experiences or whatever. Um, Ill will and wrong view. Wrong view is the third of these uh, unskillful mental actions. It's interesting that wrong view is listed here and, and wrong view, right view, this is a big topic in in the Buddhist teachings, but a, a key way that we might look at uh, wrong view or, or uh, correspondingly right view in this case, it's sort of one of the first ways that uh, right and wrong view are spoken about is in terms of the understanding of the law of karma. So wrong view is would be um, the view that our actions do not have consequences, do not bear fruit, that that, that doesn't matter. That would be seen as wrong view. And so if, if one is holding this wrong view, then it leads to all kinds of, of possibly of heedlessness, of not being careful in what we do. It's, it's actions that are based on a, on a false or wrong view of, of reality, you could say. So that's why wrong view is listed there in that. And so as I was saying, then refraining from these unwholesome ones then are the wholesome, 10 wholesome actions that one might do. And so we could say, you know, non, non-killing, non-stealing, or um, we could phrase them in, in positive terms, in terms of um, kindness and generosity and um, renunciation, for example, as opposed to covetousness. And so in either of these cases, then the Buddha, we have these kind of clear guidelines, you could say, or... Um, um, frameworks for our behavior, for our actions that lead to um, wholesome, good, pleasant states. And, and when, when we live very carefully, when we bring real mindfulness to this process, then it can lead to what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness or a mind that is, is free of uh, worry and remorse for actions we might have done that would cause harm. We have this blissful quality of blamelessness that I, one, one feels to be blameless. One has not acted in ways that are worthy of blame, that, uh, that others might blame. So even though it's said that only a Buddha can understand the broadness and the scope of of the unfolding of karma in, in a life. We can see um, ways that, that this functions just in our, in our daily life. Some simple ways that we can see this process of conditionality of cause and effect, how this unfolds, just simple ways. You know, uh, a common experience that happens on retreat 
um, for many people, as at times there can be a flood of memories of past actions that we may have done, all kinds of things that come, sometimes memories of things that we, we had no idea were even in there. And sometimes these can be difficult to be with. I know for myself, uh, coming up a lot at, at uh, times in my practice earlier on, especially were memories of, of times when I had been incredibly cruel as a little boy to insects, you know, Little boys are often pretty bad, <laughs> behave badly at times. And, you know, it was mixed because I was also kind to them and I would rescue them and I, was the, I wasn't afraid. And so I was the kid they would call to put them outside. Sometimes I would do that. But there are other times when I was incredibly cruel. And these memories coming back and all this worry in the mind of the repercussions of that and feelings of such regret and remorse for having done these terrible things to these living beings when I was young. You know, very strong feelings and uh, the reverberations of that in the mind and the heart. You know, we have memories that can come that way. We may have memories of very beautiful, wholesome, wonderful acts that we've done that come. And, and the result of that in the mind is a lot of joy and lightness and um, brightness and pleasant, happy mind states. So we see cause and effect in that way, the way the mind's, uh, mind can be conditioned from those kinds of memories, you know, and, and these results of these actions in the past, the mind states that come, and the impact in our meditation, we see how this happens. We might notice uh, this kind of present moment uh, unfolding of karma, we could say, um, in the way that, that others respond or relate to us depending on our own inner the climate of our inner world, you know, and if we, um, if we're filled with love and warmth, then the way people respond to us is very different than if the mind is uh, filled with envy or jealousy or anger, fear. So we see, see that cause and effect in that way. So with, with mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness, then we can start to really see um, the motivations behind actions. We can really bring attention to this and um, start to see how actions and results are linked in this way of conditionality. And, um, And this opens up the possibility then that we're not that we're not just running on automatic, but that we actually have a choice. It opens up the possibility for choice of whether or not we choose to act depending on the quality of the, the heart, the mind, the motivations there. And, you know, it's, it's not always easy to see. It can be very subtle. It happens very quickly sometimes. We're already halfway through an action before we maybe pause at times. But the possibility is there to see. And sometimes our motivations are clearly are mixed, aren't they? You know, for example, maybe we're sitting here meditating in the, in the hall and um, it's getting late and there's unpleasant feelings arising in the body and fatigue and, and there's the uh, intention to move and motivation to uh, change postures or to go to bed. And that, you know, there's wisdom in that. It's getting late. We're tired. We need rest. We need to rest the body, rest the mind. But then we may also find at the time, maybe the, the desire to keep sitting, the intention to keep sitting comes. And, and there can be uh, some wisdom there also. Let me push the edge of, of this. You know, don't just immediately say, oh, it's time to bed when the first feelings of, of tiredness come on. But... Um, but they could be mixed, you know, maybe we want to look good. We want to be a good yogi. We want to be able to, to tell someone how, how, how I sat for three hours, you know, late at night or something like that. Or, or maybe we're moved to make an offering, a, move, a sincere desire to um, do something generous, right? And it can be very pure, beautiful quality of just um, wanting to make an offering. But then there could be um, some feeling of, um, you know, we want people to see that we're generous. Or maybe we we're hoping to get some something back, either praise or, 
or something in return, or maybe there's a quality, maybe there's some guilt. And we're hoping that by giving, we can have these guilty kinds of feelings go away, that it will alleviate that. So, so they're often mixed. But with mindfulness, then we can start to uncover our motivations, which sometimes may be hidden or subtle hidden aspects to the motivations behind our actions. And we, it's like we see, okay, what's running the show right now? It's the way I like to think of it. What's running the show in my mind, in my heart? Is it greed? Is it some kind of aversion? Is it confusion? Is it wisdom? Is it clarity? Is it generosity? Is it kindness? We see what's running the show there. It's just what's, what's present in that moment. We can see what's going on. We can see, we can look at this quality of karma or of cause and effect in terms of um, what we think of as personality. Let's say a, a little bit about this. But what, what do we mean when we think of our own personality or we speak of someone having a particular kind of personality? What do we, what do we mean by that? You know, usually um, we can, if we really look at it, we see, okay, it's a tendency to behave in certain ways. It's certain patterns of, of somewhat predictable behavior that we see maybe in ourselves or in someone we know, another person. And um, we tend to look at that as though it's somehow it's fixed, you know, that we're just, we have a personality. I have my personality. They have theirs. We tend to think of it as a fixed thing. But actually, if we look there, it's what's, it's a process of, of repeated kinds of actions in the body, in the mind, repeated um, mental qualities that get done and they get conditioned and they tend to wear kind of a groove so that they, they tend to happen again. You know, every time we do something, an action of body, speech, or mind, it, it, it's like we're practicing that. We're conditioning, conditioning a bit of a tendency to do that same one again. Like the Buddha said, whatever one frequently thinks about or ponders on, that becomes an inclination then in the mind. And so if we act out of kindness or generosity, we're conditioning the tendency to, um, we're practicing it, we're conditioning that and the opposite of true. When we act out of anger or fear or uh, um, selfishness, we're practicing that. We're conditioning the tendency to act that. And so personality gets built up in this way of conditioning. And so um, we have the possibility then to, to condition the, the good, to practice good things. And so if we think of karma in this way of, as a science of happiness or a recipe for happiness, the way that it functions is that we're given great responsibility. This karma, this teaching gives us great responsibility for how our lives unfold. And, um, you know, the choices we make really have a powerful impact. We could, say we, we could say we create our own destiny in a way. There's a very frequent reflection that the Buddha recommended one often do, whether nun or monk, lay man or lay woman. It's one of, uh, one of a number of reflections. And this is also the, the traditional reflection that's used in the practice of cultivating equanimity. And Sky mentioned this the other night. I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions and live dependent on my actions. Whatever I may do, for good or for ill, that will be, I, to that I will fall heir. I will be the heir of that. So this is a powerful reflection for us. And so we begin with our own inter- internal world there, looking to see what is happening in our own mind and heart, the intentions, the motivations that accompany those intentions. <clears throat> 
and then see how this shapes the course of a life. So I want to stress once more, um, as I come towards the end of this, this talk tonight, that um, the dynamic quality of this process, you know, that it's not fixed, there's nothing predetermined, that, um, that there's a, a very dynamic quality to how, how this unfolds. This is from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Some people misunderstand the concept of karma. They take the Buddha's doctrine of the law of causality to mean that all is predetermined and that there is nothing that the individual can do. This is a total misunderstanding. The very term karma or action is a term of active force, which indicates that future events are within your own hands. Since action is a phenomenon that is committed by a person, a living being, it is therefore within your own hands to decide whether or not you engage in any particular action. So there's this choice there. So we have to be careful not to oversimplify this process. And there's, there's, there are the fruits of our actions that come to bear in our lives. There's a whole bunch of things that are outside the realm of karma that, that figure into what happens. Uh, illness and the effects of food and of climate and weather. Accident. That are, out, that are said to be outside of the uh, functioning, outside of the realm of karma and the fruits of karma. So it's not a closed mechanistic system. And we can think of it in terms of a seed that might be planted, you know, all the factors that might come into play then, where it's planted, if it's cared for or not, if it's watered or fertilized, if its weeds are, are pulled away from it so that it has room to grow. And this holds true in our own lives in the same way. And so, and how we are in the present has a powerful impact on the fruiting, the unfolding of, of the, uh, the fruits of past actions. And goodness in the present tends to draw out the power of past wholesome and skillful deeds and actions and bring those to bear. So we could, we could say we, it's a way we almost, we can kind of wrap uh, past unwholesome actions in with um, goodness in the, in the present. And it has a very powerful impact. And there's a, a beautiful story from uh, uh, the time of the Buddha of, um, that many, probably all of you maybe have heard of this uh, uh, monk uh, who became a disciple of the, the Buddha. His name was Angulimala, right? He was a, um, he was a serial killer at the time of the Buddha. He was a guy, his, actually his given name, his name was Ahimsa, which means harmless. It was his, his given name. But then he got some bad advice from a, he was pretty, he was very, um, he had a lot of good qualities and a, and a jealous teacher gave him uh, this instruction that he had to kill, I think it's either a hundred or a thousand beings. And, you know, he, he believed his teacher and, and, and wear their fingers in a garland. Angulimala means garland of fingers. So he, he was doing this. And I think the Buddha was um, you know, going to be his last victim. The Buddha was walking through this area where he was living. And, and he said that he chased after the Buddha. He couldn't catch him. He said, stop, stop. And apparently the Buddha said, I have stopped. It's you who need to stop. And um, anyway, he was impressed by the Buddha, became a disciple and became fully enlightened. According to this, this, te- this story, he became a fully enlightened uh, follower of the Buddha. And, um, you know, it's said that he actually, he, after this time, whenever he went on alms round, people threw rotten fruit at him. And, and uh, you know, he had to bear a lot of, um, you know, there's some bad feelings, lingering bad feelings <laughs> from this uh, life that he'd, he'd committed. And the Buddha said, you know, you just have to bear this. But clearly the Buddha didn't say to him, you know, well, you just have to go spend a few eons in hell realms. Um, you know, he took him on and, and uh, as a disciple. And it's interesting with Angulimala, uh, you know, I'm teaching the metta chanting, the Karaniya Metta Sutta chant, which I've described as being one of these Parita chants. 
chance of blessing and protection. Well, there's an Angulimala Paritta, which is a chant about uh, Angulimala. Apparently after his um, awakening, when he was a monk, he was on alms round and he, he heard, uh, uh, came by a household where he knew uh, the people and there was a, a young woman who was um, having a difficult labor in childbirth. And he was very moved by the suffering. And he went back to the Buddha and said, is there something we can do? And the Buddha said, yes, go back and tell them that you've never harmed a living being. And Angulimala said, I can't say that. I'm a serial killer. <laughs> I'm a bad dude. And um, the Buddha said, go back and say, since you entered the holy life, that you have no, never intentionally harmed a living being. And Angulimala said, yes, this is true. I can do this. And so he goes back to this household and said, says, by the power of this truth, that since entering the holy life, I have not intentionally harmed a living being. By the power of this sister, may you be eased in, in this childbirth. And um, it worked. And so now that paritta is chanted in, some, uh, in, in Buddhist countries as a protection for women in childbirth. That's an interesting legacy following on from uh, this life uh, that he, he lived there at that time. So it's not, you know, that all of, there's a lot that comes into play in the unfolding of karma. It's not, um, you know, because of this, then this is going to happen. It's a very dynamic kind of a process. And the power of the mind, the power of intention, of motivation in the mind is really big in this and, and has far-reaching consequences in our lives. And um, there's a way then within this whole understanding that we really can choose what seeds, to a great extent, what are the seeds we wish to plant. And this has a, has a lawful impact on uh, what, will, what will grow from that. So I need to stop at this point. I think maybe next week I'll talk a little bit about, um, you could say, the karma, the actions that lead to the end of, of um, end of this in terms of the unfolding of, uh, in terms of the practice of the eightfold path and how that uh, unfolds to liberating understanding and the and what you could call the the ending of karma, perhaps. So uh, as is our custom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.